Well, if you have your Bible this week, turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. And we'll begin in chapter 4 in just a moment. Uh, through the years, people have uh, blessed me by giving me books. People uh, love to give their pastor books, and this pastor loves uh, to get books. I don't know how many I've received through the years. I'm sure it's in the hundreds. And there was one book that just had a greater impact than all the others. I wonder if you had to guess, if you could figure out what book might have been given to the pastor that would have had just an absolutely profound effect upon his life. Uh, I'll tell you, it's a book by Jim Sherd. Uh, it was given to me about a dozen years ago, give or take. I was about 40 years old, if I remember right. I actually never read the book, uh, but it still had a tremendous effect. I'll tell you the title. Finishing the Course, Strategies for the Back Nine of Life. And when I received that book as a 40-year-old, my first thought was, what is this about? I'm not on the back nine of life. What are they thinking? But I did a little bit of math, and I figured out that they were right. I had begun the back nine of life, and of course, none of us know how long we will live on this earth and in this life, but I was on the back nine, and that shook me up. It was like a ton of bricks had fallen on me. And I began to think about some of the things that, that I believe the Lord had put upon my heart to do that I had been postponing until maybe sometime later in life I could do those things. And in the next two years, after receiving that offensive book as a gift, uh, I got busy. Uh, I uh, decided to go and share the gospel in the jungles of Africa. That's something I had believe that the Lord had put on my life. I ran a marathon in slow motion and <laughs> I, um, I wrote a book that only my mother read and I um, adopted a child, which turned out to be the most significant uh, thing. But it was, um, it was really an eye opener. There are some times in life when something ought to shake us up a little bit. Do you know what I mean? There are times when, when something ought to capture our attention and just help us to recognize how brief life is and just how brief these opportunities we have to do the things that God has called us to do. And for me, that was a shake-up event. And for you, my prayer is today will be a shake-up event. So strap in, here it comes. Uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 5 verse 16, Paul says, make the most of the time because the days are evil. And so I like to preach about this time of the year each year, a message that I call, come before winter. Now this is not original to me. I've shared with you in past years, uh, the story of Clarence McCartney uh, a uh, pastor in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, pastor of the Arch Street Presbyterian Church. He preached a message titled, Come Before Winter in 1915. And it led to a revival in the city of Philadelphia. And so he re-preached 
the exact same message every year, 40 plus years until the year that he died in 1957. And then the following year, 1958, W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Dallas, decided that he would pick up the mantle and he preached the message, come before winter. And since then, pastors all around the world, many pastors, uh, have decided to just embrace this custom and preach a message, their own message, but to preach their version of come before winter just about this time of the year. And so it's been my custom in most of my ministry to preach a message come before winter. Now, if you're thinking, Pastor, we didn't come here today for a rerun. We are tired of the same old thing. Just think how my wife must feel. (laughs) And so my wife probably has this message memorized, and so do my children, and uh, hopefully one day you will as well. Seriously, uh, it's not the same message as as you heard last year, if you were here for Come Before Winter. The introduction is the same every year. The message is, uh, is very different. Uh, But today, come before winter. And so the focus is 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here we see this historical account of something very significant that happened in history and in the life of the Apostle Paul. And I want to begin reading in verse 6. The Bible says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. The Apostle Paul writes this. He is a prisoner in Rome, waiting, trial, and likely execution. And so he says, I write these final words. I write this message to my, to my son in the faith, Timothy, to give him good counsel as he pastors the church at Ephesus. Look at verse 7. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's an obituary, really. If you'll read it closely, Paul is making some final comments, some remarks about his life that's about to end. He says in verse 8, There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. And then verse 9, it's the critical verse. It's one that we often skip, but it's a critical verse. He says, make every effort to come to me soon. So a little bit of the historical setting. Paul had been arrested for his faith. He continued to say that Christ is risen, and that got him in a lot of trouble. He was arrested and imprisoned in Rome two different times. The first time he was eventually released, but now he is expecting that he will be executed. And we believe that he was Uh, Nero was the uh, was the emperor of Rome and Nero had Paul uh, beheaded uh, because of his faith now you've got to understand that in that point of history something very significant had happened in the city of Rome the the centerpiece really of the civilized world in those days the city burned down and Nero uh, the emperor blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians. And if we had more time, we could go into all the reasons why and what really happened and and what Nero was trying to do. But we know, and here's why this is important, we know the date of that event. It was in July of 64. 
not 1964, just 64, okay? July of 64. So the city burns. Nero blames it on the Christians, which puts Paul's life in even greater jeopardy as he awaits in prison. And then in, um, and I have the year here because I always forget, in the year of 68, Nero committed suicide. He was just 30 years old. Actually, it was assisted suicide. He had his secretary plunge a sword through him uh, to bring about his death. Now, I just want you to know, if my assistant kills me, it will not be because I asked her to. I might have deserved it, but I did not ask for it, and I just want the record to be clear. Uh, but that's what happened to Nero. So somewhere between 64 and 68, Paul was executed uh, for, his, uh, for his faith. Now, we'll see as we go through this why that's, uh, why that's important. Paul knew that the time was coming to a close, and so he makes this last request. And you see it there, verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. I want you to see some further things about the request. If you go down to verse 11... He says, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. Now, this is important because there was a time, and you read of this in the book of Acts, when Paul and Mark had this division. Uh, they were on a missionary journey, and uh, Mark did not fulfill his promises. He didn't persevere. He didn't stay with the work. And so there was a division between these two men. And we read about that in the book of Acts. Now we fast forward to the end of Paul's life. And what has happened? There has been a reconciliation of these two men. Because Paul says, I'd really like to see Mark again because he's so valuable to me. I'd like to see him before I before I die. Now keep that in mind because that'll be important a little later in the message. It's also interesting to look at verse 13. He says, when you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially uh, the parchments. And so he wanted his books. I'm impressed that the apostle Paul was a scholar even to the end. He studied, and he studied the things of God, and he never quit. Even when he knew that his days were numbered, he wanted his books. He wanted to learn just a little bit more about God and about God's glory. Now, I mentioned to you that the first person to preach this uh, message, his version of this message, uh, was Clarence McCartney. And I want to read to you a little bit of his message because he talked about the cloak. So, Paul says to Timothy, bring my coat. I'm cold, so bring my coat. Now, I can't say it like McCartney said it, so I want to read to you his words, and you'll realize what a fantastic communicator he was. He says this, he is to bring the cloak too, which Paul had left at the house of Carpus in Troas. What a robe the church would weave for Paul today if it had that opportunity. But this is the only robe that Paul possessed. It had been wet with the brine of the Mediterranean, white with the snows of Galatia, and yellow with the dust of the Ignatian Way. 
crimson with the blood of his wounds for the sake of Christ. It is getting cold at Rome for the summer's waning and Paul wants his robe to keep him warm. And that's just McCartney's description of the robe. Uh, you can find his sermon online and it's an incredible, an incredible read. Well, I want you to go down now to verse 21, 2 Timothy 4, 21. And I want you to see just, uh, well, his last request, it's really a repeat of what he's already said, but it's important. He says, make every effort to come before winter. Uh, Paul understood that not only was his life brief, Paul knew that he was going to die soon, but the opportunity was brief. And so he says here to Timothy, come before winter. Now, why, why did he say that? Well, Paul understood that uh, the winter season is the storm season for the Mediterranean. Paul and Timothy are about a thousand miles apart, and the only reasonable way to get from where, where Timothy was in the city of Ephesus to where Paul was in the city of Rome uh, was by ship. But you didn't take a ship in the winter. Uh, there was no weather forecasting. You didn't know what the weather was until the weather was. Uh, you wouldn't take a Caribbean cruise if there were no weathermen and it was, say, the month of August, right? Because it's unpredictable in the Caribbean in August. And so that was the, the Mediterranean in the winter. And so Paul says, if you don't come now, if you don't come immediately, not only is my life short, but the opportunity is so brief here. You must come, and you must come now while there's a chance. Come now. And so Paul issues this, uh, this invitation. I think this is important to us for a couple of reasons that I've already mentioned. First of all, it reminds us of the brevity of life. Uh, Paul knows he's going to die. He gives us really his obituary in verses 6 and 7 and 8. Uh, he tells us that he has uh, done his best to serve the Lord. He has poured out his life like a drink offering, but now everything comes to a close. Paul knew that every time the door opened, it might be the executioner coming to take him away. Paul knew every time he ate a meal, it might be his last meal. Every time he saw the sun set, he knew he might not ever see it set again. He knew that his life was short. And our lives are short. Now you may not be facing execution, hopefully, like the Apostle Paul faced execution, but still, life is short. And none of us know how long we have to live. I'm reminded of what the Bible says in James chapter 4. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city. We will spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Just making plans like all of us make plans. And then he says in the next verse, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Life is short. Life is short even if you live to a ripe old age. Do you know that? It seems like the longer we live, the faster life goes. Do you know that? If you don't, you will. I remember Christmas when I was a kid. It seemed like from Thanksgiving to Christmas absolutely took forever. I remember my mom 
would hang on the refrigerator, this calendar, had a little piece of candy for every day. And every day I would be able to take a piece of candy or my sisters would take a piece of candy and uh, off the calendar. But the purpose of that was to count the number of days left until Christmas. And you know what that was? That was pure torture. I think my mom was just trying to make us miserable. I would get up every day and it just seemed like Christmas was never going to come. But now I'm, a, I'm on a different, uh, a different end of life. And now it's Thanksgiving and just bang, bang, it's Christmas. And then it'll be Christmas again. Life just gets faster and faster. I used to think when people said that, that they were just lying. I thought when you got old, you lost your hair and you lied a lot. <laughs> but I don't believe that anymore. And parents, I'll be careful with my words here, but we all know the stages of life, right? And you can see them in the person of Santa Claus because there is a time in life when you believe and then you become and then you look like. <laughs> and you can sort of figure where you are in that, um, in that equation. Just to encourage you, and I do this most years, I've done some math and I want you to just maybe have a better understanding of how short life is. And so I took what the government says is the average lifespan, 78 years, and I compared it to an 18-hour day. So you wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning, you go to bed at midnight, what time is it? And here's what the math says. If you're 25 years old, it's 11.46 in the morning. If you're 45... It's 4.23 in the afternoon. If you're 55, it's 6.42. Dinner is over. If you're 65, it's 9 p.m. If you're 75, it is 11.18. Happy holidays, right? <laughs> also compared life to a 365-day year, a calendar year. If you're 30 years old, it's May the 20th. You die on the 31st of December. If you're 40 years old, it's July the 6th. If you're 50 years old, it's August the 22nd. If you're 60 years old, it's October the 8th. If you're 70 years old, it is November the 24th. Doesn't that make you uh, just smile with joy and enthusiasm? I know a lot of you are golfers, and I thought about the book that really kicked a lot of this off in my life. If you are 39 years old, you are on the back nine. If you are 65, you just walked off the 15th green, you look up and you can see the clubhouse in the distance and it's getting closer by the minute. Life is short. And you know, we joke around about that, but that's what, that's what Paul understood. He says, I have come to the end of my life. Life is short. But the other thing I want you to see, be reminded of here, that Paul is telling us is not only that life is brief, but I want you to see the brevity, brevity of opportunity. So Paul understood that uh, if Timothy didn't come now, there would be no future opportunity for him to come. And so in our lives, there are times that the Lord has given us 
for us to act now. And if we don't act now, the opportunity will fade away. And as we watch the leaves fall every year, it should remind us that the opportunities of 2021 are fading and they may never return again. The Bible talks about how when God brings conviction in our heart, that if that is not responded to, if we're not obedient to the Lord quickly, that that, that, that passion, that conviction will just disappear. Jesus shares a parable in Mark chapter 4 where, where he says some of the seed, referring to the word of God, referring to the conviction of the Lord, some of that seed falls on the hard path and the birds come and they, and they take it away. And he says there are times in a person's life when, when he hears from the Lord and he can choose and, and go down a path, but if he doesn't do it immediately, then even the desire to go down that path will go away. I cannot tell you how many times I have seen someone this close to making a decision that would impact the rest of their lives and maybe the lives of all those people around them. But they, but they postponed it a day or a week or a season and then it just faded away never to, never to present itself again. I'll read you some more words of Clarence McCartney as he talked about this. Listen to how he said it. Before, winter, or never, there are some things which will never be done unless they are done before winter. The winter will come and the winter will pass and the flowers of the springtime will deck the breast of the earth and the graves of some of our opportunities, perhaps the grave of our dearest friend. There are golden gates wide open on this autumn day. But next October, next November, they will never be, they will forever be shut. There are tides of opportunity running now at the flood, but next October, they will be at the ebb. There are voices speaking today, which a year from today will be silent before winter or never. And so with that in mind, this is the fifth year I've preached this message to you, but every year... I think about, I pray about, what are some areas that I think the Lord would have me to highlight for you where we need to come before winter? That we recognize how short life is and how, how the opportunity is so narrow. Here are some areas I think we should come before winter. Number one, we should come before winter in the matter of exaltation. Uh, now there's more in my outline that I'll have time to cover today. You can get that online next week. Uh, but most of us, and, and this is true, I think in many days this is true of me, most of us are so self-centered and we're so focused on our own lives, our own problems, our own hopes and dreams that we forget that life is supposed to be first about the Lord. Our relationship with God is not primarily for the purpose of making our lives easier. Our, our relationship with God is primarily for the purpose of glorifying God. 
But we think of things in terms of ourselves. Lord, give me this and fix that and, and work this situation out and take care of this. And, and that's, all, that's the entirety of our spirituality. I think today is the day and now is the time for us to recognize the importance of, of reorienting, reorienting our entire lives on honoring and worshiping God. It's time we begin to shift from our neediness to God's glory. It's time we shift from I am needy to he is worthy. It's time that we mature in our relationship with God and our understanding of who he is and what he's done. We need to exalt the Lord. Our lives must be about exalting the Lord for who he is. If you have a two-year-old at home, you know that that two-year-old wakes up in the morning and has only one focus. What can you do to meet my needs, right? And from when that two-year-old gets up until when that two-year-old goes back to sleep, that's the only thing he thinks about. What can you do to meet my needs? And that's okay for a two-year-old. But if that's your husband, that's a whole nother thing, right? In our relationship with God, certainly God wants us to bring our needs God wants us to pray. God promises to bless us, to hear and to bless us. But look at the things the Apostle Paul prays for in the book of Ephesians that we're studying. Look at the, look at the prayers in the New Testament and, and learn that, that first and foremost, our focus needs to be, must be on exalting the Lord. Listen to what Ephesians 1.3 says. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heaven. Here's how we ought to pray. Lord, it is amazing that you have been so good to me. That your grace and your mercy is, is, is just unexplainable. That you are powerful and you are filled with love. You are truth. We should praise the Lord. Ephesians 1, 6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace that he has lavished, that he has lavished on us uh, through the beloved. God has been so good to us. Our focus, it's time, church. Our focus, come before winter, should be on exalting God, on exalting God. I was in a seminar this, this last week, a whole week on 18th century evangelical spirituality. Doesn't that sound exciting? <laughs> but one of the things that we studied is this debate that was going on in the 1700s about whether or not you could even be a Christian if you would not be willing to spend eternity in hell if it would somehow bring glory to God. And now before you think, well, that's an obvious question, uh, it's not. And, and some of the smartest uh, theologians in the history of the church wrestled with that and debated with that for a lot of years. And when you study it, it's a very difficult question. But, but, but here's why that's important to us. Sometimes our relationship with God is only about what God does for us. That God has rescued me from hell. That God gives me encouragement. That God answers my prayer. That, that I trust my kids with God. And, and, and we think that our relationship with God is all just about what God has done for us or will do for us but we ought to have a love for God that goes beyond the benefits. We ought to have a love for God and exaltation for God. It is time that our maturity, the maturity of our relationship with God 
that it might grow. Well, how do we do that? Well, I, I think the primary way we do that is to worship. We worship, weekly worship with our church family ought to be the most important thing ever on our list. We should never miss the opportunity of worshiping the Lord together with our church family. But it's not just church worship, that's first, but it's, it's, it's prayer, it's reading our Bible, it's honoring God, it's being careful to give thanks to God at every turn and in every opportunity of life. It is time for us to come before winter in the area of reorienting our lives to focus on exalting the Savior. Number two, we should come before winter in the matter of transformation. Now, I'm trying to take most of these preaching points from the book of Ephesians, where we've been spending our time in recent weeks. And I thought of Ephesians 4.17. We've studied this. Let me read it to you. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. What he says here, and we've learned this, there ought to be a difference between how we live and how the world lives. And for too many of us in too many areas of life, we have planned obedience but not lived obedience. Do you know that any time you plan to be obedient later, we are being disobedient now. You can't plan to be obedient, you can only be obedient. And, and the Bible so clearly says in the book of Ephesians that, that the way we live, listen church, the way we live ought to be different. We ought to live lives characterized by obedience, and they ought to look different than those people who are not followers of Christ. And it is time, it is time for us to come before winter in the area of living for the Lord. If we plan to live for the Lord in the next season of life, listen, we're being disobedient in this season of our lives. I think about a very specific Application for this that we also studied in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, listen to this. Sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard among you as is proper for the saints. Listen, church, it's time. It's time. Too many people are, are, are still playing around in this, in, 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 with, with sexual sin and, and all kinds of sexual sin. And we plan that one day things will be different. One day we'll be godly in this area. One day we'll live a, 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 a characteristically Christian biblical life. But not now. Church, it's now. It's time. Let me ask you some hard questions. If there's sexual sin or any other kind of sin in our lives, what are we waiting on? What does God still need to do for us so that he will deserve our obedience? Think about that. What does God still need to do for you such that he would deserve that you would be obedient to him? What makes you think that there will ever be a better time to honor the Lord in this area than there is right now? And what are you not getting from the Lord? What are you getting from this sin that you're not getting from the Lord. We must come before winter in the area of transformation. And then number three, finally, we must come before winter in the matter of reconciliation. I told you that the Apostle Paul, we see here that he's uh, the example for this, that, 
that he had this division, great division, big enough that it's in the Bible. But by the time he got to the end of his life, he had remedied that. He had reached out to Paul, I mean, to Mark. And we don't know how it got worked out. We just know it did get worked out. Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3 says, Bearing with one another in love, make, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Romans 12, 18, if possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. It's time for us to reconcile broken relationships. Can I share with you another connection that this has with the book of Ephesians that we've been studying? The Apostle Paul was essentially the pastor of the church at Ephesus for about three years. And when he writes this letter, Timothy is the pastor of the church of Ephesus. So, so many things center around Ephesus. But when the Apostle Paul left his church, there's a description of that. Acts chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 36. Let me just read some of this to you. And I'm not trying to just pull heartstrings, but listen to this. It says, after he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. So Paul says, I'm leaving. And he prayed with the church. And then the next verse says, there were many tears shed by everyone. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him. Grieving most of all over this statement, it says, that they would never see his face again. Listen, there will be a last time that you see somebody. There will be a last time you talk with someone. There will be a last chance for you to say what needs to be said. And none of us know when that is. I have had, as pastor, a hundred people, probably more, who have said to me through the years, if I had only known that the last time I saw them was the last time I would see them this side of eternity, I would have said something more. Listen, life is short and opportunities are brief. Let us come before winter in the area of reconciling broken relationships. Now listen, I, I want to close with this, and I, and I know we don't have a lot of time. You're looking at your outline. You see there's still a whole bunch of points. I'm going to go through this quickly. Uh, I've never done this before. I, 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 I always just end my come before winter message there with whatever three things the Lord has uh, impressed upon my heart from Scripture. But here's the hesitation. I love to preach this message, but here's my hesitation every year. One of the things I've learned as a pastor is that real change does not come from big decisions. It's taken me a while to learn this because there was a time in my ministry when, when, when I just thought all we had to do is to get people to make some big, bold, emotional decision and everything was solved. I mean, in marriage counseling, that would be the point. If I can just get that man to, to promise he'll never do this again or he'll always do that again. If I can just get the woman to say she'll never do this again or she'll always do that again. When, when we talk about people who are struggling with sin, if we could just ever get them to say, I will never, 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 ever do that again. If we could just get people to make these big, bold decisions, I will read my Bible every day. I will never miss a day. I'll read 10 chapters a day. I'll, I'll read the whole Bible every weekend or something. If we could just get people to make these decisions. I will witness every day of my life before 2 p.m. If we could get people to make big, bold decisions, then life change would happen. 
And I, I think that was uh, the focus of a lot of my ministry. And, and, I, and we would celebrate that when, some, when, when we could get somebody to make one of those big decisions, we'd celebrate because we thought, hey, we have won a real victory here. But what I've learned through the years is that real change doesn't usually come from big decisions. It comes from something very different. And, and I know a message like this come before winter, where, you know, I'm pushing, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will help you make some big decisions. Make some big decisions about sin, to make some big decisions about relationship, make some big decisions about your prayer life and your worship and your commitment to those things. But I know that, what do they say, 80% of New Year's resolutions don't make it to the end of January. I know that big decisions are not how to, how to change your life. So let me give you a primer, and I want to go really quickly, but I want to give you a primer on how to make a big decision. And this is from the Lord. This isn't, it's from the scripture, I should say, uh, from the Lord through his scripture. Uh, it's, it's not just my, my personal view, but let me tell you how to make a decision. Number one, make a little decision over and over and over. How do you, how do you make a big decision? Make a bunch of little decisions. Proverbs 4 verse 25 says, let your eyes look forward, fix your gaze straight ahead, carefully consider the path of your feet and all the ways will be established. Don't turn to the right or to the left, but keep your feet away from evil. We should consider the steps that we take. The way that you walk is one step at a time. And the way you make a change in your life, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your spiritual walk, whether it's with some sin that has mastered you for so many years, the way you make a change is one step at a time, a little bit at a time. It's not some big, I will never, ever, never, ever do something. It is a thousand little decisions. I will not do it today. If you were going to walk from here to Lufkin, how would you do it? Not one big step, but 100,000 little steps. And that's how we make a decision. Have you ever, well, everybody here knows what you should do if a genie offers you three wishes, right? I know that's not biblical, but just hang with me a minute. What do you do if, if a genie offers you three wishes? You wish for more Wishes, right? And then the pressure's off. I mean, you don't have to get these three big wishes right for the rest of your life. You just wish for more wishes and then it's easy. So what we need to do if we're going to make a big decision, we need to understand that that, that is really biblically, step at a time, Proverbs, that is really a thousand, a million little decisions. It's one step at a time. So I've, uh, I've counseled with people who struggled with pornography, that's uh, something pastors do often, so, uh, counsel with those people. And um, here's what, uh, here's what they, they say, they want to say. They, they really want to say this. Pastor, I've made a commitment that I will never, ever, 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 ever do that again. Now, how often do you think that commitment lasts? Never, ever, ever, ever. Don't make a commitment to never do it again. Make a commitment not to do it today. And make a commitment today that you're going to make the same commitment again tomorrow. Because it's not one big step to Lufkin. It's 100,000 little steps to Lufkin. And that's why the Bible says to pay attention to your steps. To pay attention to your steps. So make a little decision over and over. Secondly, and all these are important, walk with the Spirit 
Ephesians 3.16, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. The power to change is not in you. The power to change is in the spirit of God. Proverbs 16.3, commit your activities to the Lord and then your plans will be established. Power comes from the Lord. Your sanctification, that means you changing and becoming more godly, is a work not of yourself, not of your willpower, not of your uh, moral strength, but it is, it is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, you cooperate with that? Absolutely. You call upon the Holy Spirit to work? Absolutely. You can't get in the Holy Spirit's way? Absolutely. But this has got to be done with the Lord. And if you make a commitment to change, to come before winter, and it's just all about what you can do in your strength, you will fail. Uh, just like you needed the Lord for salvation, you could not have saved yourself with, apart from the work of the Lord. You cannot change yourself apart from the work of the Lord. Just as you were, you were 100% dependent upon God for salvation, so we're 100% dependent upon God for sanctification, we must find a way to do this, do this with the Spirit. And that's something we, we, we speak on often as we study the book of Ephesians. Number three, very quickly, commit to actions, not results. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 4, the slacker does not plow during planting season. At harvest time, he looks and there is nothing. Too often, uh, we're focused on the end. We're focused on, on, on the accomplishment. What we need to do is to see what are the steps to get you there. What are the steps to have a, have a godly marriage? Don't just say, I commit to having a godly marriage. No, what are the steps to to get to the godly marriage. What, what do you need to do in, in your relationship with God? What do you need to do in your daily devotions, your quiet times? What do you need to do in your involvement and commitment to church? What are the steps? Don't just focus on the end. Focus on the steps, the means of grace the Bible teaches us about. Number four, partner with a spiritual person. Proverbs 13, 20. The one who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Uh, the Bible says that God has created us, listen, that we need help from other people. God could have created us in such a way that we could do this alone or do this just us and the Lord. But you read through the New Testament, it is so critical that you're connected with other people, that you're in a class, that you're living the spiritual life with other people, that people are praying for you, encouraging you, admonishing you, fussing at you, holding you accountable, lifting you up. If you're going to make a change, if you're going to make a big decision, you need to link arms with some other people, some Christians, to help you do that. Number five, start today. Proverbs 27, 1, don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day might bring. And we already said this, as long as you plan to be obedient, you're being disobedient. You must start today. And then finally, commit to restarting. Proverbs 24, 16, though a righteous person falls seven times, he will get up. Don't just commit to doing something. Commit to continuing to do it after you fail. Um, you can't say, I'm never going to fail. What you should say is, I'm going to continue to do something even after I fail. Listen, church, I love this section in 2 Timothy 4 because Paul says to Timothy, life is short and the opportunity is brief. And I think in a thousand ways, that's what we need to embrace. 
for you, for me, life is short and the opportunity is brief. What would the Lord have you to do today? Head bowed, eyes closed. Let me share this with you before I, we wrap everything up. The most important way you come before winter is to respond to the gospel message that you are separated from God because of your sins. But Jesus, because he died on the cross, has made a way for you to be forgiven. And if you will surrender to Christ and trust him alone for salvation, you will be adopted into the family of God. You will be forgiven and saved. Oftentimes, people think of heaven as a place for good people and hell as a place for bad people. But the Bible tells us something different. Heaven is the place for those who have prepared, for those who have come before winter, for those who have called upon the Lord and surrendered to him. Hell is a place for those, many of whom, planned to do it later. Father in heaven, may we all honor you by coming before winter. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we worship.